Hello and welcome to PathPod. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado, and this is our next episode of PathPod News Edition. Today our host, Dr. Meredith Pittman, speaks with Miranda Schreiber, a researcher in the Department of Postgraduate Medical Education at the University of Toronto. You'll hear their conversation today about the history between medicine and the LGBTQ2 community, as well as the need for systemic changes to address healthcare inequalities. Dr. Pittman can be found on Twitter at Pitt, and Miranda Schreiber can be found on Twitter at MIR3019. Now here's your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. Hello, and welcome to PathPod News Edition. I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. I'd like to begin with a correction to my reporting in last week's episode, where I stated that LGBTQ employees could be discriminated against and fired in 28 of the 50 United States. I'm pleased to say that this is no longer the case. On Monday, June 15th, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, also covers discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity or expression. Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the majority opinion, stated, Today we must decide whether an employer can fire someone simply for being homosexual or transgender. The answer is clear. An employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. End quote. It's especially fitting, then, that we have with us today Miranda Schreiber, a researcher with the Postgraduate Medical Education Program at the University of Toronto. She and her colleagues have created educational tools for resident physicians to learn more about the health inequities that impact the LGBTQ2 community and how to better serve this population at the individual level. Miranda began studying the philosophy of science as it related to medicine and medical education as an undergraduate, where she focused on the value-ladenness of scientific research. For those of us who are not philosophers, and I am not, Value-ladenness speaks to the idea that the values we hold as scientists and physicians play a role in what sorts of scientific questions are pursued, and Miranda was interested in how this would impact representation in scientific research and within the scientific establishment. From her studies and her own experiences as a patient, she decided to pursue work related to LGBTQ2 representation in healthcare through the lens of public health and in the realm of medical education. Thank you, Miranda, so much for coming on PathPod News Edition today. Before we jump into history and culture things, I did want to talk about letters because in last week's episode, I was talking to a couple of pathologists who specifically work with transgender breast health, and I kept using the terms LGBTQ+. Um, mm-hmm. I noticed that in the work you've written, you use LGBTQ2+. These acronyms are an attempt to be inclusive of this really diverse community of individuals. And so I was wondering if you could talk about the two, because that's something that I think is a little bit less common in the United States. Yes. And I'll just get up the document I wrote because I quote um, a Haudenosaunee elder. This is in reference to Turtle Island, the um, indigenous name for North America. I also like this quote because I think it really evokes the relationship between um, health and two-spirited people it really sort of throws into relief how things have changed mm-hmm. um, in colonial North America. Uh, so then the Haudenosaunee oral tradition elders describe people who were gifted among all beings because they carry two spirits, that of male and female. 
it is told women engaged in tribal warfare and married other women, as there were men who married other men. They were honored and revered. Two-spirited people are often the visionaries, the healers, and the medicine people. That's really beautiful. I love that First Nations indigenous description of the two-spirited. Kind of building on that, it was interesting to me as I read your stuff, how this idea of queerness has been perceived throughout history and across different cultures, just like that two-spirit idea in, in Native communities. Did you, as you were researching and writing, have any favorite historical or cultural expressions of LGBTQ2 identity that you would like to share? So Hafez, the Persian poet, writes to his sort of beloved, and it's, it uses masculine adjectives rather than feminine adjectives. Some quotes of his are, Sir, you carry the, beauty, the business of beauty beyond all limits. He describes the beloved as a cypress. He walks so straight. The poetry translations are like gorgeous. That's lovely. I feel like so much of that has been stripped out of what we learn historically. Yeah, Um, sort of like pre-colonial representation of uh, LGBTQ love or identity or it's so variant. It's definitely something that I wanted to emphasize just in just in terms of the fact that very few people even really have an understanding of how queer history has developed and the mm-hmm. role colonizers particularly like the British Empire have played in developing what are today damaging legal codes and whatnot. So, so that's a perfect segue because what I could not believe uh, when I was reading is that that half of all countries where homosexuality remains a crime today have these laws on the books left over from the time that they were British colonies. What would have been the point for the British to come in and and put down these very strict laws? The origin that I try to tease out of that sort of Christian line of thinking, it's like initially a Platonic ideal that absorbed into Christianity. The sort of key idea is that the intellect is um, superior to the appetite. Mm-hmm. So therefore, if the intellect is rational, it would determine that virtuous sex is reproductive and often Mm. sex isn't reproductive sex. So understanding or interpreting homophobia and transphobia as like imported social phenomenon Mm -hmm. that were ultimately um, formalized into into law as the result of empire was something we really wanted to emphasize um, in the lecture series. Media very rarely mentioned that... uh, laws in India, law and homosexuality are literally British legal code. And not only sort of formalized these profoundly homophobic concepts, but it also outlawed pre-colonial gender expressions like the hijra. So that's like a a non-binary Indian gender expression. Hmm. And so that residue of empire Uh is a deeply powerful um, variable in the lives of queer people. And that's something that we hope doctors as agents of, of a colonial state in Canada need to be conscious of within their clinical practices. So we have colonizers that are going out and criminalizing behavior of LGBTQ people for these kind of religious reasons. And then you also have these Western scientists and doctors that in the 1800s were solidifying this notion that uh, someone who was not heterosexual or not cisgender was ill, like physically, mm-hmm. mentally ill. And I'm wondering if you've thought about how those two things go hand in hand and how those notions of medicine in the 1800s are carried over 
into today? What kind of impact has that had on modern medicine? Michel Foucault writes about how this experience of confession that you would have where you sort of confess your hedonistic behavior to a priest and then the priest cleanses you of your sin, how that um, dynamic was kind of reinterpreted in the modern world in terms of if you were gay in the Enlightenment era, you were sort of expected to go into the medical office and confess your homosexuality to the clinician who would then analyze you in an ideally in Enlightenment language sort of dispassionate, unaffected way, and then therefore sort of cure you of your pathology. Hmm. Um, And that was something that was really important to emphasize because you have this, in the modern world, we have this very sort of shaky relationship between queer people and the medical institution. Mm -hmm. And kind of tease out the the source of that and uh, identify the root. When you think about the way that the homosexual conceptually was created as the sort of like subdivision of humanity, like that occurred in the medical establishment. And that was like a a product of, of medical thought. The whole concept that the homosexual can be diagnosed, um, their homosexuality can be extracted, and then they, as an individual, can be cured. And this is Foucault. He said that in the medieval world, you could partake in the sin of sodomy, quote unquote. And that was an individual sort of engaging in that activity. Mm -hmm. With enlightenment and within the sort of scientific project, the homosexual became your entire identity and you yourself became a kind of case object and something that needed to be studied. And that sort of thinking, that understanding of the physician as the subject and then the homosexual or the patient as the object, uh-huh. the physician is somebody who needs to sort of interrogate, analyze, and then order the data and then draw a conclusion about the patient. Mm-hmm. That sort of um, module is very present in medical thinking and medical discourse. Yes. As you're speaking, I'm like, yes, it's shocking to me, as you say, medicine created this idea of this, this thing, which is a homosexual and is separate. And that's like their entire identity. We did and still do that in many ways. Just to your point, I was listening to um, just a piece that PBS did yesterday, and they were talking about medical racism and saying that implicit racist ideas peak in medical students right before they write, I think, exams in the Mm -hmm. state. And that's because they've been formulating these thought patterns, many of which refer to the race of a patient or thinking about taking note of the patient's race. That's how we're taught in medical school to think about kind of probabilities. And it really does, you wind up pigeonholing people. And I think when um, race or sexuality or gender is sort of presented in this very um, objective light, which is that, of course, objectivity is great. And yeah, (laughs) we love science. But if a racial disparity or sexuality-based disparity in health isn't presented in terms of its context as a product of pernicious social forces that Uh need to be disassembled, it doesn't actually lead to better clinical care. It leads to the perpetuation of those same phenomena and relationships. It's definitely um, a a very pressing, I think, need mm-hmm. in medical education to begin that reflexive self-examination. Oh, that's really, that's really good. We have this idea that we medicine created that, you know, a, a, this homosexual person is different um, mm-hmm. and has some sort of underlying pathology. And I think that really impacted the way that we as society responded to the HIV AIDS crisis. What are some of the ways that we went wrong there 
and what were the consequences for our patients? Homosexuality was um, declassified from the DSM in 1973. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't officially a sickness anymore when AIDS began. Mm -hmm. But there again, there's cultural, very close association between queerness and sickness. uh, So that a lot of theorists have pointed out um, how being gay or being trans is sort of closely tied to illness. One of the theorists I quoted in the article, Lee Edelman, writes that because queer sex is interpreted as being anti-reproductive, queer people are perceived as being against life. And then, you know, that has a strong capitalist implication. If the best person is a productive person and you're this in this relationship that can't even produce, in some cases, queer relationships can't produce a child biologically, that sort of experience as this anti-life and sort of therefore unimportant thing. So with AIDS, that notion is still very present in the sort of cultural collective consciousness. And okay. um, there's this implication that queer people have kind of brought on death or desired death. Hmm. And then you can hear that um, latent in political statements. So I, I'm going to be mainly talking about the U.S. because that's where most of the data is. So Reagan said, when it comes to AIDS, medicine and morality teach the same things. And hmm. um, you can hear that there. You've, you've brought on death and you deserve death because right. you're not acting in a sort of virtuous way. And therefore, medicine as an, as an art or a function isn't, isn't made for you. It's made for the sort of the virtuous people. Wow. Um, and that's something that Plato even writes about. So you can trace that way back to the beginnings <laughs> of Western thought. That it seemed natural to associate queerness with sickness led to a sort of very profound neglect of queer lives. So Reagan didn't say the word AIDS until 12,000 Americans had died that we know of. When Reagan finished his presidency at the end of the 80s, 89,000 Americans had died. 300,000 died by the time um, AIDS was better controlled. And then for the Canadian piece, our federal government was similarly negligent um, under the Mulroney government. It's really the, the actualization in, in very raw statistics of mm-hmm. the cultural concept and how we sort of envision being gay or being trans. In contrast, mm-hmm. I can't imagine tens of thousands of people dying of coronavirus and us just being like, oh, well, and not doing anything about it. The idea that for the HIV AIDS epidemic, people were dying and we just shrugged our shoulders collectively is really sad, like deeply, deeply sad to me. Something that was really telling was when the New York Times did that, 100,000 deaths, Mm -hmm. all those names on the front page. Uh, Some of the queer activists I follow were posting the New York Times' article about 100,000 AIDS deaths. It was not on the front, it was way, way into it, and it was was a tiny little article. Yeah. Um, It was definitely not a headline event. It was not front page news. Another thing that COVID has made us all think about is these racial disparities from long-standing systemic racism. And we've all read the articles about how the coronavirus is disproportionately affecting Black communities, Indigenous communities. There was a similar trend during the HIV AIDS crisis. Can you give us a little bit of information about how the HIV AIDS crisis specifically impacted communities of color? Yeah. The statistics are limited to the 80s, but just generally mm-hmm. Black Americans account for 
40% of American HIV AIDS deaths, despite making up 13% of the U.S. population. And then in Canada, Black Canadians are 3.5% of the total population um, and account for 25% of those living with HIV AIDS. Wow. And that's something that was definitely clear to me in the research I was doing, that the Mm -hmm. North American media really portrayed AIDS as a white male crisis. They withheld even apparently during the epidemic, even basic information regarding its impact on Black communities, other communities of color. But community organizers acted independently and provided care and advocacy for um, oppressed groups uh, during the AIDS crisis. So um, there's an organization in San Francisco called BWMT. So they enacted this whole process of documentation, lobbying, protesting, and some of their members like Reggie Williams uh, were able to secure government funding specifically for Black Americans with HIV. Wow. Uh, And then... Reverend Jesse Jackson said, I'm just going to read it, AIDS has been able to stalk and murder Black America, and it is time for us to fight AIDS like the civil rights issue it is. To that extent, like any, I guess, public health crisis, the statistics of sickness during a pandemic will always reveal the strata of privilege that are always there, but are thrown into very profound and horrible relief, I think, anytime there's a mass sickness. Sure. And then in Canada, obviously, Black Canadians are disproportionately affected by AIDS and um, Indigenous Canadians are also. So it's just this sort of systematic discrimination manifests very profoundly when you look at the actual, in a sense, objective accounts of sickness. Right. Mm -hmm. So the institution of medicine is not doing so well providing care, not just for LGBTQ patients, but those at the intersectionality of that, right? Those who are also LGBTQ plus a racial minority. But if you were to corner a doctor on the street and be like, do you think that an LGBTQ person or a First Nation patient should be given the same quality healthcare? They would say yes. But obviously Mm -hmm. the way that patient might experience healthcare doesn't match my ideal of providing the same healthcare for everyone. And you specifically wrote that, you know, these LGBTQ2 patients live shorter lives, um, in some cases documented with data unhealthier lives. Can you speak a little bit to the experience of those patients? Yeah, obviously we have this concept very much born of, again, enlightenment liberal ideology that we have this fair culture, everyone votes once in your guys' constitution. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal kind of mm-hmm. thing. And I think that that's very obviously present in scientific education, even in Canada where we have single payer public care. Just because everyone has a sort of technical access to care, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that the way that we experience care is is equal. And we mm-hmm. there's a huge spectrum of how care actually goes for <laughs> you sure. depending on like all these different variables just because nobody's explicitly barred from it it doesn't mean that there isn't a sort of need for structural change mm-hmm. and then I think just ex- on an experiential basis this sort of part of the of the work was very intuitive to me because I think any queer person has experienced this you're just experiencing a worse grade of medical care you you have a doctor who's just less prepared because they don't know about their specific health issues. Obviously, I think emotional care is a huge part of mm-hmm. being a good clinician. 
suddenly you have all these doctors who are making you feel really uncomfortable or describing you or your partner in like a sort of derogatory or undignified way. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it goes beyond. Medicine is in an institution that has a hermetic seal on it. Health is this very sort of amorphous, interconnected concept that is determined ultimately, you know, by the state. If the state is not sufficiently providing for its citizens, these social forces will just sculpt a less healthy life for oppressed groups in which like minority stress will cause mental health problems, but you don't have access to support for mental health care or addiction, or there's no right to housing right now. So if you're a right. queer and you got kicked out of home, where do you go? And if there isn't universal basic income, it's really hard to live a quote unquote healthy lifestyle right. <laughs> if you're living in poverty. Then furthermore, like in Canada, we're a colony. So we perpetuate systemic racism against like indigenous black latinx people so then there's also this intergenerational trauma that's caused by the residential schools we set up for police violence mm-hmm. and, and all of these sort of come together and feed on one another um, and ultimately inhibit access to to care and to health for oppressed people yeah i feel like all of these are really coming together at this very moment in our lives with the pandemic and with the protests and with the police brutality. And it's just, it's quite a moment in history that we're living through. So you specifically have been working at the University of Toronto with the medical education department or program to try and improve the curriculum that our very newest physicians will receive and how to think about and treat LGBTQ2 individuals. I guess just very basically, what were you trying, hoping to achieve as you and others sat and started working on this curriculum? What was your end goal here? So I definitely didn't have an overwhelmingly high stakes goal. We're not going to just educate the whole problem into nothingness. And I think the extent of the crisis can only be properly understood by also sort of acknowledging how small a role medical education really plays in it. Medical education at the postgraduate level, which is where we're working, it is insufficient in terms of preparing uh, the residents to help underserved communities. One of the books I I read while I was organizing the article was Just Medicine by Dr. Mm-hmm. Dana Brown Matthew. So I, I recommend that book if anyone wants to read okay. more. She writes on uh, about medical racism and speaks a lot to the extent to which unconscious bias will always sort of overwhelm conscious desires and conscious values. And so she writes on the extent to which ultimately health disparities have to be solved at the level of the state. Interesting. Um, So she writes, the more complete answer is that health disparities are rooted in structural inequities and therefore require a structural solution. So that's the ultimate goal and the extent to which this sort of small Uh piecemeal addition is obviously insufficient, but individual clinicians do play a role, obviously, in the maintenance of the LGBTQ health gap and their lack of knowledge or unintentional bias or the way that they use language plays a role in the reluctance of queer people to go to the doctor. I guess we hope that by educating trainees, Mm -hmm. uh, we can target some of the sources of the LGBTQ Mm -hmm. health gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we also sort of want to prompt residents to to ask themselves how they, as citizens independent of their of their job, um, perpetuate 
the health gap and how they can act like in the interest of public health beyond That's interesting. Um, individual practice. So you can give them this lecture and then give them all a copy of Just Medicine and hope that they will go forward and not just be good individual practitioners, but get more involved in their communities. Yeah, I mean, that's the irony is like if you you can be a wonderful doctor, but then if you go home and you vote against public services, you're you're doing you're, you're harming the health of people. That's kind of the point we want to make is that, of course, it's important to do the best in as a physician, but there's a lot more you have to kind of consider in terms of how you provide opportunities and access for people. Right. For the big M medicine overarching, not just on your day-to-day work. I loved, as I read through the materials you sent me, that you came up with case studies for Mm. these as part of this educational material. And you gave a lot of very practical tips for people um, for physicians who who want to be allies and want to have good relationships with their LGBTQ2 patients. Um, and I was wondering if you could share just a couple of those tips today, ways to, to speak and to act that are safe and affirming as opposed to disparaging and demoralizing. Yeah, so language is really important rather than providing like a sort of prescripted list of categories mm-hmm. ask open-ended questions so like if you're an endocrinologist talking to a trans patient just say tell me about your gender identity mm-hmm. or ask just generally to a patient who are your partners so rather than just this top-down methodology of this is what you can be and tell me which one you are yeah let the patient as a subject sort of express it themselves mm-hmm. and then care should definitely be trauma-informed so Certain things that are easy for some people are harder for others, obviously. So telling a patient, oh, just quit drinking, that's sort of potentially alienating for someone. They might be drinking to cope with trauma Mm -hmm. or to have a space in their community. So understanding the complexity of intersectional politics, like Mm -hmm. how things like race, gender, sexuality, gender identity, ability come together to create specific challenges for the patient's life. That kind of compassionate understanding, I think, really goes a long way because it can just be very hard when you feel you're sort of being misunderstood and the challenges that you've overcome to even do something like get to an appointment or get your blood work done or pick up prescriptions on time. So consent-based care is another big one. So especially for trans patients whose bodies are often sites of trauma Mm -hmm. um, or physical exam. It's really important. One thing we put in the video was say what you're going to be touching, why mm-hmm. you're going to be touching it, because it's it's really common for doctors to sort of ask trans patient questions for the sake of the doctor's curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're sort of going in with that often with that sort of as a potential. So saying what you'll be touching, why you're going to touch it, and then make sure that you have the patient's consent to move forward, and also reminding them that they can change their mind. That came up last week. We were talking with Dr. Hang, and she's at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. And she said that one of the things that endocrinologists there are working on is figuring out very culturally sensitive ways for managing transgender breast health, knowing that it will be an emotional issue for many of these patients and how to approach it appropriately and sensitively and make sure that patients are getting what they need without traumatizing their patients. And so I think that's a really neat tie-in with Dr. Hang from last week. Completely, yeah. And then as soon as you take the patient's mental health seriously as as a very sort of profoundly affecting component of their health, you can see how health can be sort of harmed 
in a multiplicity of ways in a, in a clinic. It's not just like a misdiagnosis. If the, the sort of practice that the physician carries out their care with is somehow not affirming, it can be very, very harming. The last sort of one was being conscious of resources, so mental health resources. It all is sort of unified under the, the aim of subverting the um, enlightenment dynamic. So just seeing the patient as a really complex subject who is a, a knowing individual who possesses really, really profound knowledge mm-hmm. of themselves and their bodies, seeing them as a subject, not an object. Yeah, I love that. I seriously doubt that I ever heard the phrase subverting the enlightenment dynamic in my entire medical school career. <laughs> so that's amazing. <laughs> but I also think uh, speaks speaks really strongly to importance of having different views for something as important as medical training, because it is such a broad umbrella and we sometimes get a very narrow viewpoint. For those listeners who are curious, who want to, to learn more, You've mentioned just medicine, but do you have anything you would recommend to our listeners who might want to read and learn more? I mean, there's a ton of books in terms of sort of evoking that like subjective experience. I could think of books or or the film Moonlight, I think is one of the best films I've ever seen. Yeah, it's a really beautiful film. Uh, The Color Purple. I don't know. I I, I was sort of thinking about like if someone wants to be a better, uh, like the best possible ally, I would sort of imagine it almost as moving beyond that sort of research stage. I think Mm -hmm. that's a really important part of it, but ultimately sort of orienting yourself toward positive action, I think is the best way to do things. Mm -hmm. So serving public health, I think would ideally not sort of just be focused on the clinic. It would be donating, donating to bail funds and signing petitions and writing to local politicians and, you know, using your privilege as a physician to, amplify the voices of queer people, especially those of color. So I think the best sort of allyship practices look beyond modifying individual behavior or um, a single physician's clinical methodology and just mm-hmm. sort of look to the, the systemic roots of sickness and trying to, trying to subvert them. Time to start doing something. Yeah, I think that's the sort of best, the best way forward. That's um, great. Miranda, this has been wonderful. I really appreciate your taking time to talk with me today. I've learned a lot just from reading your materials and talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. That was Miranda Schreiber, who works in postgraduate medical education at the University of Toronto, speaking to us about providing care for LGBTQ2 patients. Thanks also to her colleagues, Drs. Tamina Ahmad, Jeremy Siegler, Wilson Kwong, Michael Scott, and Jacqueline James. Together, they presented their work at the Canadian Conference on Medical Education this April. And thank you to you, our listeners of PathPod News Edition. We'll be back next week with another timely topic in pathology and medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, 
affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.